Well, um, Brother Wally, will you pray for us and we'll get started? Yeah? Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. That you teach us through your word. I thank you for Chris and the work that he does to prepare for this class. I pray that you speak through him today, Lord. Give him wisdom and open our ears and hearts to understand what you have for us today in the word. Amen. Well, uh, we're going to pick up today um, basically where we left off. It's been a couple weeks. Pastor Miller had you guys last week. Um, we're going to pick up, if you want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 is where we'll be. Um, while you're turning there, I thought I might just do a little recap since it's been a couple weeks um, since we were together on, on Acts. Um, what we saw... Um, last week, we covered two chapters, actually, chapter 6 and chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 6, what we saw happening there was um, this necessity coming up in the church um, in that um, some widows were getting overlooked in the, the distribution of the, the church's food. The apostles had to assign some men to this task, to this job of, of servanthood. And the apostles um, assigned, actually, seven men seven men who were full of the Holy Spirit and were faithful. And these men were, were basically, as, as most commentators see it, um, kind of setting up uh, a preliminary office of the deacon. They were called to, to work, to do service in the church um, for the express reason so that the apostles, the teachers, could be set apart for the word of God and to prayer. And so that really kind of carries over into how um, we view the, the, the office of deacon. We're really to do the dirty works that the, the elders and, and the teachers can uh, prepare, can pray, and study. Because we want them to have time to study. And uh, it's good for all of us if they're able to do that. And so we looked at one, one of those seven deacons in particular last week, and that was Stephen. Um, Stephen did not only um, serve tables and distribute food, um, we also saw him um, preaching the gospel. Stephen was uh, able to perform miracles and signs as well amongst the people. Um, it, was the, it was the preaching and teaching of Stephen um, that in fact uh, caused an issue. He was, he was taken by the Jews, dragged before the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish council of leaders, and he was um, held on trial for his teachings. And so as we, as we left chapter 6, enter chapter 7, uh, what we have in chapter 7 is a huge chapter all uh, based on the, the defense of Stephen to the Jewish leaders. And so Stephen's called uh, before the Jewish leaders for his teaching, and there uh, we saw his defense. And what he was doing in Acts chapter 7, just to remind you, is that he was basically giving um, an Old Testament theology lesson to the Jews, showing them that um, his view of temple worship, his view of Jerusalem, his view of the law, um, his view of these things that they saw as blasphemous was consistent with how all of the Old Testament prophets um, viewed these things. Um, Father Abraham as well, Moses, Joseph, um, they were all uh, given hardships by the people of Israel um, just as Christ was and just as Stephen himself was. And so he was showing them from their own scriptures uh, why his teaching was not inconsistent with, with the God of the Bible. And uh, Stephen's sermon ended up being um, much too convicting for the Jewish leaders, and they basically um, 
attacked him like a pack of wild dogs and uh, ended up stoning Stephen. They ended up stoning Stephen um, to death, um, not before he was actually graced by the Lord to have a vision of the very throne room of heaven where it said that Stephen saw the Lord, saw God, um, and the Son of Man standing at his right hand in his last moments of death. And so uh, it was with that stoning of Stephen that we actually pick up today in, in chapter 8, verse 1. And uh, let me just read the first verse there of Acts 8, verse 1. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. This is speaking of the, the stoning of Stephen here. Saul was in hearty agreement. Um, we already know that. Uh, because of what was included in chapter 7, if you look at just a couple verses up, verse 58, um, right? Saul was there overseeing the, the stoning of Stephen. It says that the witnesses um, in, in Jewish law, the, the witnesses were required to be the ones to cast the first stone. And so when it refers to these witnesses here who were laying their robes down at the feet of Saul, that's who they were. They would have been the ones who uh, were required to begin the stoning, even though... Uh, the commentators debate on whether this, this mob violence would have actually been structured enough to, for that to happen correctly. Um, it seems like they were just out of control. But uh, Saul was there. He was overseeing. He was giving his hearty approval to the death and the murder of Stephen, and everyone was laying down their coats at his feet. And then verse 1 in, in chapter 8 goes on to say, And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so this, this stoning of Stephen, this, this, this murder of Stephen because of his teachings, um, his Christian teachings, um, did not end the persecution. It, it simply began a persecution. This was just the very first um, act of violence against the church. And so the text told us that, all of the church, except for the apostles, um, were scattered as a result of this persecution. They were scattered to the outlying regions. Uh, they were pushed outside of Jerusalem. And the areas outside of Jerusalem that they, that they turned to, that they fleed to, is called Judea and Samaria, these outlying regions. And uh, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3 there, because here Luke, um, the writer of the book of Acts, gives us just a... Look at the, ex the extremely descriptive language that, that Luke uses of, of Saul's participation in this persecution. Verse 3 says, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, and he put them in prison. And so that's Saul. We all know who Saul's going to be, but for me it's still... Um, an amazing thing to read texts like this from chapter 7 and now chapter 8. Um, it's an amazing thing to see this man Saul who's ravaging the church, it says. Um, he's a Christ-hating church, um, persecuting, uh, just unbelieving man at this point. And so it's always strange for me to study, as, as I had the last couple of weeks in Sunday school, to see Saul in this light. And then it's very strange to see Saul in this Christ-hating manner and then to go into the worship service where Pastor Emilio is preaching to a 2 Corinthians, a book written by Paul, and then we see the, the grace of God transform this man um, who's ravaging the church. And then next, next thing we know, we see him as 
as really the, the, the most godly, um, Christ-loving, church-adoring man that ever lived. It's just an amazing, I mean, we're seeing um, an amazing contrast um, as we go from here to our sermon. Um, really, it's amazing. Um, the, the conversion of Saul, we'll actually get into next week, uh, but it, it's really just a miraculous proof of, uh, of the resurrection, of the, the reality that, that Christ lives, and Christ called this man who hated him, and, and he would not have um, turned lest the risen Christ appeared to him, I can assure you. He, he was in no way seeking, seeking God in any way. Um, so let's continue. Let's continue to verse 4 and following. Um, here we're going to see the reaction of the church to this, to, to this great persecution. Uh, we're going to meet here another one of these um, primitive deacons uh, that were assigned to serve the church um, back in chapter 6. And this deacon we're going to see here, just like Stephen, uh, we're going to see him doing more than, than, than just serving tables. Um, will somebody maybe read for us just to get you guys, just to break the ice for you guys, maybe verses 4 through 8. Somebody read that for us. Right. Okay, thanks, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here we see um, this man we get introduced to, Philip. Um, he was one of those early deacons, and we're going to see, I, I call him Philip, deacon slash evangelist, because we're going to see him um, doing much evangelism. He's scattered. He's forced out of Jerusalem with the church as a result of this persecution. Um, he's forced specifically to this area of um, Samaria. And here, just like um, Stephen, he's, he's, he's preaching the gospel, but not just that, he's actually performing signs and wonders. Um, this deacon is able to uh, cast out demons, it says. Um, these guys, Stephen and Philip, really put our deacons to shame, I think. Really, really convicting, huh? Um, but I want you to notice that um, it's not simply the apostles. It's not even the apostles and these um, seven deacons who were preaching the word. Um, look back in verse 4, where it said, all those who had been scattered due to this persecution were preaching the word. Everyone, the entire church was spreading the gospel amidst persecution, amidst being pushed to a, a brand new place. Um, they didn't spend all their time house shopping. They were, they were preaching the word. They were preaching the word. And, and, and so what came to mind for me is that in our small groups Wednesday, I think, in Scott's as well, um, we talked about suffering. We looked at Paul's suffering. Um, that he's going to go through later on, and we, we talked about um, even persecution. And so I think about um, this persecuted church um, really, as we're going to see, uh, being very, very productive in the spread of the gospel. And, and, it, and it just seems to be the, the pattern of, of how God works and how the church works. Um, we talked about the example of China, how when, when communism just overtook China, um, Christian uh, evangelism and missions was, was pushed out of the country trying to suppress Christianity. When Christians are actually able to come back into China, they find, I mean, the, the most flourishing church that there could be with underground house churches and things like that. Um, persecution does not 
slow down the spread of the gospel. What I'm, what I'm saying is it actually seems to increase um, the spread of the gospel, which is an amazing thing. So um, what, why do you guys think that is? Why, how is it that a persecuted church um, somehow all of a sudden is more productive than they ever were before? What is it about persecution do you think that could, that could cause that? Any ideas? I got a couple ideas why I think. One thing with Saul, who did to me, he serves in as a prime example is he was never apathetic. He was either extreme one way, totally against God, mm-hmm. totally for God. Yeah. And I think that's what brings out a true church. Mm-hmm. So when persecution arises, I mean, it's no, you can't be apathetic. Yeah. Yeah, it takes all that option, takes that option out. Yeah. out. Yes, sir. Maybe another factor is maybe that the church is more purified under persecution. You get you get to really see who's in and who's out. Yeah. You know, and becomes more effective. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I had. It it kind of uh, has a way of of removing the leaven. I mean, those who aren't willing. I mean, they'll they'll bow to Caesar. They'll, you know, reject the Lord, and they're out. So all you're left with is just people who really are willing to suffer. Um, and they're going to be feeding off of each other. It just, and also, I just, I just had my other note was, it just has a way of setting your priorities straight. You know, all of a sudden, all the things you spent a lot of your time doing really don't matter at all at that point. I mean, these people were out of jobs, out of the synagogue, um, probably away from most of their family who hadn't converted, um, no houses. And what did we see them spending their time doing? They realized that this is all about um, salvation. It's not about temporary luxuries and comforts. Um, everything is put into perspective um, for a persecuted church, and so they spread the gospel. They, they, they don't lose the, the importance of spreading the gospel. Um, so let's, that's good. So let's go on. Um, in verse 9 and following, what we're going to see is Luke's, so Luke, we just saw Luke describing um, Philip's preaching in Samaria and how the masses are reacting and they're overjoyed at his preaching, they're overjoyed at the miracles he's able to do. Now, Luke's going to hone in really um, on the reaction of one man rather than the masses. He's going he's to pinpoint actually a rather famous man in Samaria, and we're going to see his reaction to Philip's gospel. Uh, verse 9 says, Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria. And he was claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized men and women alike, and I just want to note there, men and women alike, both being baptized, um, is just another um, beautiful benefit of the new covenant um, for the ladies especially. The ladies are being baptized. The ladies are able to take on the sign of the the new covenant as were before. The the sign of the covenant was only for men. Women, um, there was no no way for them to take the sign of the covenant. They they were excluded from that. that benefit, but here in the New Covenant, women, um, just as men, are able to take the sign of the covenant. Um, and then verse 13 says, even Simon himself believed, this, this Simon, this sorcerer, this magician, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. 
And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. And so what we basically have set up for us here is, is everyone knows Simon the Magician. Um, he's been doing his, his magic arts. Um, uh, most think that these are legit, this is a legitimate occultic practice that he has demonic abilities to do signs and wonders. The people have been amazed for a long time. It says everyone knows him from the smallest to the greatest. Um, this man even has uh, a stage name. He's the great power of God um, he's known by. And so it's really uh, like what we would consider uh, a celebrity conversion almost, you know, like what we would, how we would kind of see that. Um, Simon, this magician, sees um, all of Philip's miracles. He, he, the text says he believes the message uh, that, that Philip preached um, Philip baptizes uh, Simon, this magician. And then verse 3 said there that uh, Simon, this, this magician, continued on with Philip. He was, he was going right along with Philip, uh, the evangelist, um, as he ministered. And so uh, we'll, we'll come back to Simon in a moment. The text um, uh, leaves him for a second here. So as I was saying, we've been seeing the, the mass movement and conversions in Samaria. Um, and what happens is there, there's such a, a great move of God in Samaria that even a couple of the apostles uh, that remain in Jerusalem are called um, to Samaria. They leave Jerusalem. They come to Samaria to, to see and to confirm uh, this great work of God that's going on. And uh, let's read 14 through 17. It says, Now... When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And so another question for you guys is what, what is so significant about God moving amongst the Samaritans? Well, what's so significant about it that it would require uh, some of the apostles to leave Jerusalem, the place where they didn't even leave uh, with persecution going on? Uh, what, what's so significant about their conversions in Samaria that the apostles, Peter and John, would leave and come uh, attest to this? Any ideas? I think one thing is that you have it comprises of both Jew and Gentile with a larger audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Now, I'm just going by memory here. Was it the Samaritans actually like an implanted people? Mm-hmm. They were moved from another nation back when um, all that wars and conquering was going on? Yeah. So they're not originally from there. Yeah, I mean, I think both of you guys hit on my two points. Exactly. Um, First of all, it goes to the, like what Jason's saying, that we now see the gospel spreading outside of Jerusalem, which is very significant because um, as we saw in Acts chapter 1, um, the resurrected Lord, before his ascension, um, Acts 1.8 told his uh, disciples this, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And so what we see there, as the gospel goes to Samaria and people are being saved, we see the, this command um, of Jesus being worked out. It's being fulfilled. Uh, now uh, another people group besides 
um, just the Jews are hearing the gospel. Um, it seemed, and it seemed kind of strange to me as, as I thought about it, but it almost, if, if we look at what we've covered so far, um, it seems as, right, Pentecost happened, the church is filled with the Spirit, just like Jesus said would happen. Uh, you'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and uh, you'll take the gospel. But it doesn't seem like we see the gospel being taken outside of Jerusalem up to this point. It almost seems like God in his providence um, allows and brings this persecution to cause his word to get spread. You know, we didn't see the church just immediately take it to the world like Jesus said they would or they should. Um, it's actually a result of persecution that the message uh, starts getting spread to these outsiding areas. And so, yeah, there's a significance to others besides the Jews being saved because Jesus said they were to take the message outside. And then as uh, Brother Carlos said, the other significance is in these, this, this Samaritan people as a people group. They're significant because of the way the Jews viewed them. Um, the, the Samaritans were, um, as the Jews would view them, like a, like, like a half-breed. They were like a half-breed. Um, and they viewed them like this because um, about 730, they say, to about 750 B.C., the Assyrians came and, and had a great uh, conquest amongst the people of Israel. All the northern tribes, they say, were taken by the Assyrians. They were conquered by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians basically had a, uh, a method of once they conquered a people group, um, in order to keep that people group from uh, revolting in the future, they had a system of basically watering down their nationalism so that they wouldn't be as likely to revolt and to, and to maintain that unity. And they watered down Israel's nationalism by uh, intermixing other people groups that they had conquered before so that they would intermarry, so that you have all these inter, um, inter uh, racial marriages, inter, uh, more, more significantly, inter uh, uh, nationality, inter religion, all these things being mixed in this conglomeration where the people of Israel literally lost their, their, their zeal for their nationalism and, and, and weren't as likely to revolt. And so um, the, the remaining pure Jews in Israel who had not intermixed viewed the Samaritans as like a half-breed, a less pure race. You know, we see that throughout the Gospels a lot, um, that view of the Samaritans that, I mean, they don't worship in Jerusalem. They worship at, at Mount Gerizim, a totally different place. You remember Jesus with the woman at the well, um, all of that discussion is, 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 a, is a real view of the people of Israel um, with the Samaritans. So, back to the point, it's significant that these half-breeds, as the Jews viewed them, were being called in to the people of God. It was very significant um, for them to be saved. And uh, so, so Jesus' command for the gospel to go beyond Jerusalem is being carried out. Um, these other people groups besides the Jews are being brought to the church and the text told us that they're receiving the Holy Spirit um, through the laying on of the hands of the apostles. Okay, so with that idea, let's go back to Simon the magician. Verse 18 says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered him money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Um, Simon is able to see the Holy Spirit uh, being received by these, 
by these believers in Samaria, when the apostles would lay their hands on them and pray for these believers, um, Simon could see that the Holy Spirit was given to them. Um, what, do you, how, what do you guys think? How was Simon able to see visibly? Um, it was obviously visible to Simon that these people were receiving the Holy Spirit. What, what do you think was happening that would have caused him to want to be able to do this? Or what was, what was, what was he seeing? Because the text doesn't tell us specifically. But he says he was able to see them receiving the Holy Spirit, and it made him want to be able to do it. What was he seeing, do you think? I think, it was, I think they were speaking in tongues. I think he was seeing these people able to speak in tongues. And he saw the, the, the miracle, the supernatural uh, ability of these people to speak in tongues, and he wanted that. He wanted that. Yes, sir? Maybe another thing, too, that he, that he saw was not just, you know, uh, speaking in tongues or prophesying, you know, but maybe also just he saw the changed life. He saw people's, you know, because obviously he knew the community, so he was watching people being converted and their mm-hmm. lives changed and their sins forgiven. You know, so he was mm-hmm. like seeing people's lives transformed right before his very eyes. Yeah. You know, and so that probably also had an impact on him. Yeah. Yeah, I wish. I mean, yeah, so even in that, you would think would convince someone of the truthfulness of this or would change their heart maybe. Um, but as we'll see, it doesn't seem to work for Simon. Um, so, yeah, if he was confirmed, I think, I think yeah, it, it's possible because I know that he did believe the, the truthfulness of all this. Um, I don't think that he came with proper motives, you know, as we'll see here, um, to, the, to the Christ of, of all this miracle and power. Um, I think another thing that's significant, um, the reason I, I guess I think it, we assume that it's tongues um, is that um, this was a, a confirmation, as we said, of the significance of the, of the Samaritans being saved. Um, this, this kind of goes along, as we'll see, it's a pattern, you know, as, as Jesus said, that the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you in Jerusalem, Samaria, in outermost parts of the earth. We saw tongues happen at uh, Pentecost. So that, that confirms Jesus' uh, promise that the Spirit would come to Jerusalem. And then Samaria, boom, here we see a manifestation of the Spirit in whatever way it is. And then as um, Peter goes to Cornelius, the Gentiles, boom, again, we see tongues confirming Jesus' um, systematic spreading of the gospel. Josh, you have something? Yeah, I'm just wondering, is, is, the, have you flushed, is there a way to flush out if it's over a period of time, like Emilio was saying, like a a proven life or is an undefined past action that's going on right here? I mean, I'm favoring yeah. what Emilio's saying just because it's, it's kind of undefined and you can kind of see they've shown a baptism, there's a timeline kind of, they've shown fruits of repentance because they're declaring to the whole world, I'm a disciple of Jesus mm-hmm. and you need a certain level of boldness and a certain level of, you know, there's got to be fruit in the early church because you're going to be saying, Stephen just got stoned. We're in Samaria for a reason because mm-hmm. we got scattered. Yeah. You know, you're going to stand with Christ. You better, you better show some proof. Yeah. To tell you the truth, I hadn't even. I guess as, as I read it, it doesn't even. It didn't nat- naturally read like that to me. Um, as I read it straight through, it seems like this is something he's seeing that he did not see like before, a like a sign. Like here. That's how I read it. I mean, but that, that's definitely possible. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting to me to even think about that. I think, I mean, when I read it, it seems like he's seeing something he hasn't seen before. He's, wow, I want that. Well, didn't he already want that if, if it was uh, something that was 
already happening. I don't, I don't know for sure. It doesn't say. Like I said, the commentaries, of course, are all over the place. Most guess at tongues from what I read. Um, but so whatever it is, it's significant. the significance is that Samaritans are being saved. That's what's so amazing um, for, as we said, a couple of reasons. Um, I think it would have also benefited the Samaritans who were always rejected by the Jews um, uh, for them to be being brought into the people of God, to have that confirmation, whatever, whatever the sign was or whatever they were seeing. They knew as a result of this they were really being accepted by God and by the apostles themselves. Um, that's another thing. The apostles themselves um, needed some help that these Samaritans were in fact being brought in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see all the way through um, Acts chapter 10, which one commentary I have says, you know, this is Acts chapter 10 is the conversion of Cornelius um, when the Gentiles start getting saved. The, one guy dates that 10 years after Pentecost. That's a very long time in, in the amount of time of years. It's very hard as we read through Acts. We think all this is happening like within a couple of weeks. Um, this is a very long, drawn-out process here. Um, but so... If you remember the account of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, you remember the, the sheet that comes down in Peter's vision? It's almost like God is still, Jesus is still teaching and convincing Peter that I'm making more than just you Jews uh, uh, clean. I mean, it takes that long to convince these guys. They've had such a, a presupposition of the Samaritans being unclean and, and God not favoring them. that So this sign that, that, that they are indeed being saved I think would have helped the apostles even as well to confirm for them uh, what's going on, that the Samaritans are being saved. This is huge. Um, Amelia, who do you normally quote um, that confirms just this, um, this, uh, this battle between Samaritan, or is it, is it the Gentile Jew clash that they say is the greatest clash of all time culturally? Or yeah, F.F. Bruce. F.F. Bruce says that. F.F. Bruce and- talks about uh, the rise of urban Christianity. He talks about you know, the background of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think in our CMT, too, I think he does the book about it on that one. Bruce? I don't have that one. Yeah, I should. I mean, everybody quotes him. Yes, sir. As you were speaking, I was uh, thinking about uh, the, the lady that was uh, approaching Jesus at the table, mm-hmm. and he called her, uh, either her race or her group, people group that she's from, or hers, herself a dog. Uh-huh. And then she came back with even the puppies did scraps from the master's table. Was she Samaritan or Yeah. The woman uh, at the well was Samaritan. Yeah. Woman at the well was Samaritan. Jesus That's a great example, right? Jesus kind of I mean, you see the way he talked to her. Yeah. You know, salvation's from the Jews. You guys don't even know God. He tells them. <laughs> he tells the Samaritan lady. Um, yeah. So even there Jesus says the day's now here and will come where people are not going to worship just in Jerusalem. People are not going to worship there in Mount Gerizim. Uh, God wants people who are going to worship in spirit and truth anywhere, right. which is almost like what we see being fulfilled here, Jesus' words as well. What's interesting, too, is the Samaritan woman, the apostles were still surprised that he's even talking to her. Yeah, why are you talking to her? Yeah. yeah, that's right. That just Yeah, all of that is evidence of this great clash between Samaritan and Jew. Um, so Simon, back to Simon here, uh, the magician... Um, this professing believer, um, he obviously just still does not get it. Whatever he was missing, he's missing something because the text just told us he's trying to buy 
um, the Spirit of God, the ability, um, whether it's to, to manifest the Spirit through gifts, to, to change people's lives. He sees the power of God working. He wants that. He wants to buy it with money. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't get it. And so Peter's words here in verses 20 and following, they're gonna, Peter's going to show us just how far off this um, professing Christian Simon actually still was. Verse 20, Peter says, uh, but Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Excuse me. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Peter's words here to Simon um, could not be misunderstood um, as far as what he's getting at. Because in verse 20 there he said, May your silver perish with you. And if you do uh, just a, a very brief even word study of this word perish, um, it is never used in a, uh, in a uh, mediocre fashion. Let me just quote to you a couple other verses that this word is used to it'll give you immediately the thrust of what Peter's telling Simon. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The word destroy there is the same word. Apuleia. Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body but are, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the same word there, destroy your soul and body in hell. And then Romans 9.22 says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Destruction. And so it's very clear that as what Peter's telling this man is that uh, he's saying, May your silver go right to hell with you. Right to hell with you. Peter um, is, is able to discern that this, this magician is yet actually unconverted. He's able to, to see um, through this um, question of trying to buy the spirit that he's unconverted. Um, yeah, just looking at this, how would you guys like um, Peter to be a member of our church? You know, we saw Peter in Acts chapter 5. Um, with Ananias and Sapphira, you know, they lie about how much money they're bringing to church. Um, Peter sees right through that. Here, this man, you know, maybe some would have considered to ask a, a harmless question. Hey, you know, I want to be able to, that, that seems like a blessing to people. You know, people's lives are being changed. Can I, how much for that? I mean, and Peter sees right through that. And, and what's even more terrifying about having Peter in your church than just him being able to know those things I mean, he immediately calls them out when he sees them, right then and there. Um, Peter's able to discern, and he will call you to the carpet. Um, he, he is not messing around at all in the churches. Yes, sir, Josh? The gifts are flowing in the apostolic era, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, would you consider this more of like a prophetic utterance, a uh, <laughs> word of wisdom, word of knowledge? What, what would that be? I don't know which one it is, bro. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know which one it is. It's something. It's a condition. It's something, it's something that, it's something, we'll think of it like this, it's something Peter has, 
that, like you said, it's an apostolic error, but even the apostolic error, Paul, um, Paul was deceived by Demas. I mean, Paul carried along with this man Demas. He even basically gives him a, a, a shout-out at the end of some of his letters. Mm-hmm. You know, Demas, you know, Demas is with us. Demas greets you. And then what happens, Demas goes, falls away, he says, and, and goes back to the love of the world. Um, so, yeah, Peter is given this gift, whichever one it is specifically. I'm not sure how he would define it. Um, but he definitely has the gift of discernment. He can see right through these people and their false motives and, and lack of, of spirituality. Um, yeah, think about Philip, this, this man who took the gospel there, who saved all these people through his preaching. Um, he wasn't able to discern. What verse was it? Was it 13? Um, so uh, Philip baptized Simon, it says. He believed, so he baptized him. And then it says in verse 13 that, that Simon continued on with Philip. So Simon, this false convert, there with Philip. Philip's preaching the gospel. The Spirit's moving. People are getting saved. And Philip even wasn't able to discern that maybe he wasn't really converted. Yeah. Yeah, Chris, I, I, I guess the only thing I would add to that is that there really, I mean, if you look at the passage, I mean, there really isn't really any need for the supernatural here. Mm-hmm. to presuppose some sort of prophetic utterance or some sort of supernatural word of knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, the man is trying to find well, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's pretty that's pretty plain, you know what I mean? If somebody comes up to you and says, man, I want to purchase, you know, the power of God, I mean, you don't need a word a word of knowledge to know that that is, you know, that that, that is, you know, completely contrary to God's word and, and, and uh, you know, and, and I mean, the guy just kind of laid his cards out on the table. Plus, I mean, he already knew the guy was a magician. Mm-hmm. He's already, he's already, you know, delving into witchcraft and, you know, sorcery. Yeah. So he already knew that. It was almost like this kind of came to a climax, you know, like they were. That's a good point. They knew he was there. They knew he was around. They knew they probably were going to run into him and have to deal with him. Yeah. And then it just everything comes to a head in this, in this incredible fashion that he tries to purchase the power of God, mm-hmm. you know, for his own greed. Yeah. They just call him out on it, you know what I mean? That's a good point. Well, he said the gall of bitterness. That's more of what I'm referring to. Like, how did he know he was bitter about something? Or what is that saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, that's like a even through thing. his actions, just like us. He was judging the fruit. Out of his mouth, the heart speaks. Right. Exactly. I'm just saying, like, maybe in the same way we can discern if somebody's being envious or bitter towards us. You know what I mean? And they see, they see, basically, he's probably upset. He sees that, that he doesn't have he that. He sees the spiritual prosperity of the apostles and he wants that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So, yeah, he he, he somehow fooled um, Philip for a time, but um, as with anybody, yeah, I'm sure he gave a good confession of faith to Philip. <clears throat> Philip baptized him um, upon his confession of faith, um, but time has the way of of revealing whether somebody's going to bear fruit worthy of repentance or whether they're just going to spring up quickly and, and you know, wither away. It takes time um, sometimes uh, to bring that stuff to light. And so, yeah, he did. It kind of exposed his heart there in this, in this desire. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so, okay, with that being said, then let's move on um, from this account of, of a false convert. Now, let's look at a, a real conversion. Uh, verse 20 and 5 is going to show us the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Many of you are probably very familiar with this text. Um, Josh. Sure. Can we put you to work here? Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty good section. Read 25 through 31 for us. Okay. 
So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to, to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran and heard ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Very good, very good. Um, so here, um, God himself, the Spirit of God, directs Philip um, to this man. And here we see Philip having another open door to share the gospel with someone, um, someone again who's not uh, Jewish, somebody who's outside of of, of ethnic uh, Jew, and this man's an Ethiopian. An Ethiopian, it tells us, um, and a God-fearing Ethiopian at that because the text told us that he was returning from Jerusalem. He was there worshiping God um, in Jerusalem. So what we're going to see here is, again, another uh, very, uh, just a, another beautiful aspect of the new covenant, and as we're going to see this Ethiopian eunuch coming to faith, um, because even though this eunuch is, he's coming from Jerusalem to, to worship God, um, he would not have been allowed into the temple in Jerusalem. Um, he, would, he would not have been able to go into the, to the temple to worship God as the Jews did. He would have been um, in the outer courts. He would have been outside of the, the inner circle. Uh, where the Jews were worshiping. And so we're going to see a change with that, um, with his conversion. But why is it that uh, he would not have been able to enter the temple? He went to Jerusalem to worship God, but why wouldn't he have been able to to actually enter the temple to worship? Does anybody know? According to the Gentiles, is where he stands. He can't go any further. Yeah. Because of why? Why can't he go in? Because he's not a Jew. Because he's not a Jew. Yeah, he's, he's a Gentile. Like a he's a Jew, so he's not allowed in. There's also another reason he wouldn't be allowed in. Um, he's a eunuch. Yep, yeah, he's a eunuch. And Deuteronomy 23 says that no one who is emasculated can come into the to the temple mm-hmm. to be the holy assembly of the Lord. So uh, two strikes against this guy. Um, he would not have been able to enter into the the temple. But as I said, as we're going to see. Be, Due to the new covenant, um, he won't. He wasn't able to enter the, the temple under the old covenant. In the in the new covenant, he's going to become the temple of God because he's going to indwell the Holy Spirit um, when he becomes saved. So the new covenant's benefiting uh, this man uh, significantly. Um, so what we had, as uh, Josh read for us, this this eunuch has been riding along, um, reading the scriptures, and he calls um, Philip into the chariot with him. Um, to help him understand the scriptures. He asks for help. He's actually going to ask a very insightful, exegetical question about the scriptures. Um, so let's see how, how his conversion unfolds here. Uh, I'll just continue on in verse 32. It says, Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. 
In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So the eunuch is, is, is reading the scriptures as he's riding in his chariot, and Philip, from this text, uh, begins to preach Jesus to the eunuch. And so, um, what book of the Bible is it that, that um, Philip is showing him Jesus? Is it the Gospel of John or the book of Romans? No, he's, he's reading to him the book of Isaiah. This book's written 700 years before Christ, and he's showing him Christ in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, Isaiah 53, if you're not familiar with Isaiah 53, write it down and, 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 and get familiar with this text because it is explicitly prophetic of, of Jesus Christ in many ways. Even just the, the little section here um, that's quoted, I mean, we see uh, prophetically just the betrayal of Jesus as a sheep um, is being led to the slaughter, um, the subsequent um, unjust trial, it said in verse 33, his judgment was taken away and his humiliation, his death, the text said, for his life is removed from the earth. Um, all of these things are, are speaking of, of Jesus Christ and what's going to happen to him. And, I mean, I kind of wonder why that section was quoted. Um, I'm sure there's good reason, but if you even read the, the, the previous sections and the later sections of Isaiah 53, I mean, it's amazing how explicitly... Um, prophetic the depiction is of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 is, is something else. Um, I've seen, I know Trish, I've seen Trish, and this is something maybe helpful for you um, evangelistically, is I've seen Trish um, taking Isaiah 53 and, and reading it to people or letting somebody read it on the streets and saying to them, uh, who, you know, who's this talking about? You know, oh, is this, he's talking about Jesus, you know, Jesus dying on the cross and all you know, and, or you can even ask them, uh, is this an Old Testament book or a New Testament book? You could ask somebody on the street, and it, oh, that's, that's definitely got to be a New Testament book. You know, they're just talking about somebody, you know, dying for people's sins and blah, blah, blah. I mean, and then you can show them the, the supernatural um, ability of God to fulfill prophecy through the scriptures. You can show them this was written 700 years before Christ even was born. Um, it's, it's a significant chapter uh, for sure. Um, so, so verse 35 here uh, in Acts chapter 8 says that uh, Philip simply began from this text and he continued to preach Christ to him. Um, he obviously had time on this chariot ride to present um, a, a very thorough gospel presentation. Um, he would have explained to the Ethiopian uh, eunuch all the, the necessary facets of the gospel um, and yeah, we talked about that last week. Pastor Emilio um, talked about the gospel, talked about the ne necessary um, facets of the gospel. And so to boil it down, um, the necessary facets that he would have explained to him would have been who Jesus was. Jesus, the, the Son of God and the Messiah, the Messiah of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. Um, he would have talked to him about the significance of the work of Christ, um, his life, his death, even his resurrection, he would have explained all these, these things to him um, because this, this is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through Christ. That's the good news. That's what gospel means. It means the good news. Um, 
But he wouldn't have stopped there because you can't stop there. Um, the, the gospel is what God has done, um, but it's not just enough to tell people um, how amazing Jesus is or um, to just talk about Jesus. You can't stop there because you have to explain to people how they can obtain that Jesus. That's what people also need to know is how they can receive uh, this Jesus that you're preaching to them. Um, and, and so we know that uh, Philip would have done that. Philip would have told this man that he needs to repent and to put his faith into Jesus Christ, to put his faith not in the law, not in the keeping of the old covenant, but to put his faith only in Jesus Christ. Um, you need to be crystal clear about that on how to gain Christ. The Bible's explicit about it. It's, it's, it's by repentance and faith. You need to be very clear on that um, for your own soul and for whoever you're trying to share the gospel with. You need to be very crystal clear about that. So Simon, uh, uh, Simon I mean, Philip obviously um, had time in this chariot ride also to not explain only the gospel and the gospel uh, call and, and the requirement of us um, to react to the gospel through repentance and faith. He obviously even had time to go on to and talk about um, the, the first subsequent act of obedience, which is baptism. Because read verse 36 there, um, this uh, eunuch's reaction. He says, it says, as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? Um, going on, verse 37, you'll, you'll probably notice it's in brackets. Um, some of your Bibles may not even have verse 37. I'll just read the, the verse for any who may not have it. Um, it says, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Um, the reason that text in brackets there is because it's not in the, the earliest manuscripts that we had. Um, just, as, just as I said, we know um, that somebody must understand the gospel, that they must give a profession of faith. Um, before we're going to baptize, and that's why we have membership meetings. We want to hear you. Uh, we want to know that you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ. Um, and then we'll baptize you. And so just as we believe that, obviously a very early scribe copying the books of Acts believed the same thing, and he wanted to, he thought it was necessary to insert that. Um, if we had more time, we could talk about that, 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 the, the history behind that, that variant there in the text. But um, it's a very orthodox um, statement, even though it's not written by Luke. Uh, but going on in verse 38, it says, And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. And so the Spirit of God was obviously blessing the preaching of Philip. Um, the eunuch here was, was able to see Christ in the Old Testament, was converted on the spot, um, and, and immediately reacted just in the very same way I did when I got I remember the night I got saved. I was looking for water. I, was, I, was, I called my pastor in my church, you know, I want to get baptized now. That's how I... I, he would baptize me then, you know, just like we do. You know, okay, we'll, we'll set it up. We'll, we'll baptize you, maybe with some others. Um, I was telling my dad, Dad, drive up here, you know, from Corpus. Come back to, um, you know. I, I was looking for water just like this man was. Um, so I, I feel his, his pain. Um, so, and, and look at the reaction of Philip. He still baptizes him 
um, despite his, his misjudgment, his, his misreading of Simon previously, um, he doesn't say, well, no, let's wait, you know, six months and see if you're really um, going to bear fruit. Uh, just like as we do on, on the basis of somebody's confession, we, we baptize, you know, as, as much as good as we can discern through your confession, through your um, uh, testimony. We, if we believe that you're saved, we're going we're gonna to baptize you. And so Philip didn't um, not baptize this man because he had previously been um, deceived. No, this man was baptized. You think he sprinkled him? I don't think he sprinkled him. Um, if there, well, it's funny. Does anybody here need to get their kids? Does anybody have small kids? That, I don't think so. I think Kathy left. So we're, we're okay, I think. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, can I say something about um, just a little bit of the theology of the New Testament here at this point? I think it's sure. significant. Just, Go ahead. You know, because when we read the book of Acts, you know, you see a lot of snapshot, you know, uh, events. And you have a really truncated you know, um, account of what happened, you know, and, and so a lot of times people can make a hermeneutic error to interpret the Bible incorrectly. Mm-hmm. They're thinking, well, look, this is what happened in the book of Acts, and so we must, if we want to be original or authentic, or if we want to be, you know, like the primitive early church, we need to do exactly what Acts did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, we know from the rest of the Bible uh, that uh, just like you know, I think of uh, Acts 14 when Paul prays and appoints an elder. Okay, we have one verse that says that. Mm-hmm. But then when we get to the pastoral epistles, we know that that theology is fleshed out and that it's not just as simple as, okay, you're an elder and we're appointing you. There's qualifications that need to go through and pastorals, you know, can, you know can imply that the, the elders have to be willing to lay hands on that person. So it's just, you right. can't take the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. like that and do that to it, you know what I mean, without taking everything else in Scripture into account. I got the problem with the, the house church movement. Mm-hmm. They say, well, look, they met in houses, it says it right here, you know what I mean, but they fail to grasp the transitionary nature of the book of Acts, mm-hmm. you know, so other than just point that out. Yeah, that's where the work comes in, is that there's so much transition, transition, even as we said, going from the old covenant to the new covenant, from Jews having to accept Gentiles and Samaritans. There's so much going on here that not everything's prescriptive. You know, as, that's what Pastor Miller is saying. Not everything is. We're not just trying to, to copy um, every single thing done because there is some theology behind some of this and some of this stuff's developing still. Um, but just to just to sum up the class. So what we've we've really hit another milestone here um, in the Book of Acts in the spread of the gospel. As now the Samaritans um, have received the gospel and have been saved. That's really um, the high point of this, of this chapter is that uh, from Acts 1-8, Jesus' command to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria to the outermost part of the earth, we're seeing it worked out. That's what's, that's what's happening. Um, yeah, so that's it. I ran over a little bit, but I think we'll be okay since we don't have any kids. Um, they want us to end at 150. So um, let's go to worship. Let me just pray for us just really quickly, and we'll go um, to worship. Well, Father... Father, we pray for the grace and the mercy, God, to um, have fire for your gospel. Um, Father, despite the fact that we're not under persecution as as these churches were, God, I pray that um, as it is so much easier for us, God, that we would take advantage, um, Father, of of the freedoms that we still have, God, of the grace that you give us to meet um, freely. Um, God, help us to uh, to take advantage, God, of this this 
freedom we have in America, God, and the, and the luxuries that we have. God, we have your word in plenty, God. We have uh, many Bibles and translations and commentaries, Father, and teachings and access to just unlimited amount of, of, of aspects of your word, Father. And we, we praise you for that grace, God. Help us to not take it for granted, God. Help us to go into this service, God, um, hanging on every word of Pastor Emilio so that we might um, know your word and thereby know you better. Um, we, we thank you, Jesus, in God's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.